Hi, Tyler Bowles here. Welcome to the lecture for Chapter 21 in Economics 1500 covering international trade restrictions. In fact, this will be the last lecture. This is the last chapter we cover in the main text. I don't know as I will record a lecture for the Israelson chapters. Yeah, maybe I will. Maybe this won't be the last lecture. I don't know how, I don't know how much I have to say about those, uh, about those chapters. But anyway, uh, in the last chapter we we covered the very important principle of comparative advantage and, and came to the equally important conclusion that by specializing in that good in which you have a comparative advantage, a nation can gain. Or let me say it this way. A nation can gain by specializing in that good in which it has a comparative advantage. And if you specialize in that good, you will export that good and import the goods for which you do not have a comparative advantage. So trade based on the principle of comparative advantage can make everybody better off. That's true for individuals, it's true for states, and it's true for nations. But we move into the national realm. Uh, it's often argued that, well, trade, free, unfettered trade, maybe isn't in the interest of society. And certain groups clamor for protection from imports. If there's a good for which, let's take it from the United States perspective, is there, if there's a good for which we do not really enjoy a comparative advantage and we primarily import, if we have some domestic production of the good, often those domestic producers will organize into special interest groups and lobby Congress for protection from imports. And it's proven very difficult for governments around the world to, uh, to uh, not listen to these special interest groups and to not impose trade restrictions on many imports. Uh, and there are various arguments put forward by these special interest groups, which are primarily, again, import competing producer groups for trade protection. But in general, oh, and by the way, maybe we ought to call up the slides for this chapter, chapter 21, which I will do as I continue to r ramble. Uh, I'm, on, I'm looking at slide two now. Uh, the the general effect of uh, protection from imports is to d raise the price of the import goods. Say it's sugar. Say in the United States we have some sugar production. But we also import a lot of sugar, and the domestic sugar beet producers and sugar cane producers lobby Congress, and they impose trade restrictions on sugar. What's that? What that means is it limits imports of sugar. That'll drive the domestic price of sugar up, and so all consumers of sugar will be hurt. I think we see that summarized. Well, I don't know. It doesn't, uh, doesn't really tell us that anywhere in these slides. So just listen to me. I'm telling you the truth here. Tr import protection, whether it comes in the form of tariffs or quotas, which we'll talk about here in a minute, will increase the price of the good. It'll hurt all the consumers of that good. And there are, in the United States, of course, are millions of sugar consumers. Sugar's in much of what we consume. So it'll hurt lots of consumers. Not a lot each individually, but overall, in aggregate, it'll hurt. Uh, it'll hurt many consumers. So in aggregate, the the, the loss to society is, is is great, and at the same time, though, it will indeed help a few producer groups. There are only I don't know, a couple. I don't know more than thousand, but it's in the thousands of producers of sugar. It'll help them. They'll be sell, able to sell their domestically produced sugar at a higher price, but overall. Uh, the loss to all of the consumers will far exceed the benefits to the few producers. In fact, there's no slide on this, but if you have your book, 
Uh, turn to Table 1 as I grab my book. Table 1 on page 496, I think. And it shows uh, uh, in turn, it, it, the common metric is dollars, the cost to consumers uh, in millions of dollars. And it, it does this for two countries. It does it for Japan. It's show, showing the impact on Japan of Japanese restrictions on uh, imports of certain products. And it also shows it for the United States. Let's look at it for the United States. Textiles and light industry. So textiles, that's like clothes. We know we import lots of textiles from China and, and other Asian in, countries and Mexico. So we see uh, the cost to consumers in millions of dollars is 26,000 million. So that's $26 billion. Uh, the benefit to producers is only 12 billion. So the cost to consumers is more than twice the benefit to producers. And in terms of jobs saved, it costs $148,000 per job saved in the, uh, in, in, the uh, in the text U.S. textile industry. And that's actually the lowest one as I look here for you in the United States. In the food and beverage industry, uh, it costs $488,000 per job saved. Well, you see that in this table one on page 496, cost to consumers in total far exceeds the gains to producers, although it's it's important to note that the reason import protection uh, tariffs and quotas are politically feasible is because the gain to producers, although in aggregate rather small, to each individual producer is quite large. And although the cost to consumers in aggregate are quite large, the cost to each individual consumer is quite small. Many of you don't even know you pay more for sugar because of import restrictions on sugar. I'll tell you though, sugar beet farmers are well aware of the fact that they receive higher price for sugar because of protection from imported sugar. Well, notwithstanding, again, that trade restrictions in general are bad for society, because they're good for certain groups, these groups argue for trade protection and they put forward various uh, arguments for protection which we see summarized here in slide three. And we'll go through each of these individually. There's, an, I mean, I'll just, uh, uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll go through. Here you see a summary of them. Let's just go through them individually. Slide four, creation of domestic jobs. Well, there's, there's no, uh, economic theory or there's no empirical evidence to suggest that restricting trade will increase the total number of jobs. It'll just cause the structure of jobs to change. In other words, if we impose restrictions on sugar, that may protect some jobs in the domestic sugar industry but it'll destroy jobs in other industries. If we're paying more for sugar, you and I are paying more for sugar, we have less income to purchase other goods, and so there'll be less employment in other areas. And another way of looking at it, if we restrict imports of sugar, then foreign sugar producers will have less income with which to, to buy our export goods. So the creation of domestic jobs argument holds no uh, water. It's 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 an empty argument. Uh, second argument is that and you hear this often currently, particularly with respect to China and other, and other nations from the U.S. perspective. We say, well, you know, it, we're, we need to have fair trade. 
I'm not in favor of free trade, you heard people say, but I am in favor of fair trade. We can't have free trade because nobody plays fair. So we just have to have fair trade. Or as the slide here calls it, a level playing field. If uh, Japan is, for example, I don't know, engaging in some activity which is not allowing U.S. goods into Japan, you'll, you'll hear people say, well, they're not playing fair, so we ought to not allow Japanese imports into our into the United States. Or you'll hear it argued that you know, we need we need tariff protection or import protection to level the playing field in the sense that we have to protect domestic we have to protect ourselves from low wage countries. Which doesn't make any sense at all. That's the whole idea of comparative advantage. Is that nations maybe because of and it's not just by the way low wages that drive trade that uh, as we discussed in the last chapter, were the, the sources of comparative advantage. Low wages weren't one of them. Uh, but if a nation has an abundance of labor, remember back in chapter 20, based on the uh, factor abundance theory, they may have a, a comparative advantage in labor-intensive goods. Uh, and, and wages may be low in that labor-abundant country. But that forms the basis for trade. So to say that we need trade restrictions to protect us from low-wage countries is, is, is saying, well, we don't want to trade based on comparative advantage. Uh, so again, you see this level playing field or fair trade argument, again, does not hold a lot of water. Uh, the next argument put forward for trade is that, tr that tariffs which is a way of restricting imports and tariffs as we'll see is nothing more a tariff is nothing more than a tax on imports a a tariff is a way of raising government revenue uh, and that's this uh, this is a partially valid argument for tariffs and restricting trade by the use of a tariff because indeed tariffs are in some ways a rather simple and efficient way of raising revenue but for a, a, an industrial country like the United States, which has other efficient means of raising revenue that do not distort trade, then this argument is, is not particularly valid. Now, for some developing countries who have, do not have the institutional uh, setup to tax income or tax sales or tax property, then perhaps taxing imports might be a reasonable way of raising Revenue. In fact, in the early days of the U.S., that is the primary way that the U.S. government funded itself is through taxing imports. Well, next is the national defense argument. Again, there may be some partial, there's maybe a, a partial validity to this argument based on the notion that we do not want to become dependent upon a, a foreign nation for a good that is necessary in time of war. For example, the book talks about shipbuilding. The United States does not apparently have a comparative advantage in shipbuilding. If free market forces were allowed to prevail, we would import ships and, and not have any domestic capacity to produce ships. Well, ships are important, uh, an important military good, and maybe we ought to protect the domestic shipbuilding industry. And, and that will allow us to uh, build our own uh, military ships in time of war. 
and indeed we do that with, with ship building United States. But again, it's you could also argue that well, maybe we just need to uh, uh, buy our ships. And, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense buy buy ships and have them in storage. But the technology is changing so much that that again maybe there is a national defense. Or maybe there's some validity to this argument of maintaining some domestic productive capacity in certain uh, strategic goods. Uh, but you also could ask the question, which is safer? A world in which nations are integrated with trade, through trade, or an, a, nation, uh, a world of nations that are, that are not particularly integrated and don't have a lot of, of uh, 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 what's the term? They, they, we don't have a lot of interaction one with another because of trade restrictions. Or is the world a world in which there is a lot of trade, a lot of interaction, uh, a, a safer world? Uh, I don't know. When Japan depends upon the United States for markets, uh, would would world would would Pearl Harbor have happened? When if if that was if that were the case in 1941? Yeah, I don't know. Something to think about. Well, infant industry. The next argument put forward for restricting trade, infant industry argument. Again, there might be some partial validity to this. The idea here is, without trade restrictions, there are certain industries, domestic industries, that can't ever emerge and compete because as infants, they're uncompetitive. But if they were allowed some protection and allowed to grow into adults, then they would be able to compete on their own terms. In fact, there may be an industry, a domestic industry, if it were ever allowed to grow and develop, we may have a competitive advantage in that good. For example, maybe Japan could argue that uh, years ago that well, we uh, Japanese chip producers, computer memory chip producers, can't uh, start up and begin because there there are large U.S. chip manufacturers who can sell at a low price. Uh, the Japanese firms may argue, look to the Japanese government, look if you just allow us protection from the U.S. chip manufacturers. We can grow and, and achieve some economy of scale at which we will be able to compete without the import protection. In fact, we may be able to produce at a lower cost than the U.S. chip manufacturers. Indeed, we may be able to even export to the U.S. We may have a latent comparative advantage in chip manufacturing if we can just allow, if the government of Japan will just allow these Japanese chip manufacturers to be born and grow from infants into adults. Well, I don't know. Again, how do you uh, the the counter to this argument is how would a government ever identify infants that can grow up and compete uh, as opposed to infants that will always stay infants? Another counter argument is that there are lots of industries uh, that uh, initially may experience losses as those firms develop, but will, aren't won't uh, private capital markets uh, allow those firms? if they truly will be able to compete when they mature, to go out and borrow to for a time? Uh, can those firms attract private investment to allow them to grow and develop? And as they achieve losses, and the owners of those firms or the lenders of those firms won't demand uh, a dividend or interest payments until that firm uh, grows up and competes. So it, even though there might be some partial validity to the infant industry argument, in practice, it, 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 on a closer analysis, I should say, the validity of this argument starts to evaporate. Well, next, 
strategic trade policy closely related to the idea of the infant industry argument. But uh, here we're focusing on on the notion that uh, there is a particular industry, say it's airline manufacturing, where there are so-called economies of scale or increasing returns of scale, which means cost of production go down, the bigger the firm, the larger the output scale. And if this is the case, if bigger, the bigger the firm is, the better. It has a cost advantage. What ends up is you'll only have one or two in, uh, firms producing in this, in this industry. For example, in the aircraft industry, you have Boeing and Airbus, two firms in an industry structure we call an oligopoly. Well, in this type of industry structure, it's unclear... And, and let's further assume in this example, in my example I'm talking about is very similar to the GM Volkswagen example that's provided in the book. And this, if big is if big is better, uh, and there are economies of scale, maybe it makes sense for only one firm to produce the good. Well, in this context, let's say in our little example that. With this sort of uncertainty, if, if both firms, if both Boeing and Airbus produce a new aircraft that's very expensive to produce, some new aircraft, some big large jumbo jet, if, and there's only a limited demand for there, there is some demand for this new aircraft, but it's limited. And if both Boeing and, seven, Boeing and Airbus produce this aircraft, a similar aircraft that competes for a particular market, Demand isn't sufficient to cover to, for each firm to be able to sell enough to cover their costs, and they both lose money. All right. If one firm produces, they can achieve economies of scale such that if they sell and supply the complete market, the one firm will make money. So if both firms produce the new aircraft and sell it, they both lose because there's just not enough demand, not enough market for both of them to split profitably. But if one firm produces, then uh, that firm can make money. Well, so there's some uncertainty here. If both firms are sitting there thinking to themselves, should we build a new aircraft or shall we not? Boeing's sitting there. Well, if we build a new aircraft and Airbus does as well, then we're going to lose money. And Airbus is sitting over there in the same position. If we build the aircraft and Boeing does as well, then we both lose money. So they may just both sit there on their hands, neither one of them build the aircraft, when in fact the world as a whole would be better with the aircraft, and indeed if one firm built the aircraft, that firm would profit. Well, into this context, it makes sense, perhaps, for the government of one of the nations to come in and say, look, we'll subsidize you. Even if, even if maybe the U.S. government comes in and tells Boeing, even if you produce Boeing, and Airbus does as well, and you lose money, we'll cover your loss. Well, if that's the case, see how that changes the result. So now Boeing knows that even if they produce... Nope, hang on, my phones are ringing. I think it'll quit. Just hang on a second. That's actually my fax machine that's ringing, so it'll only ring a few times. I, then it'll quit, and I apologize. Well, see how that affects the game. So Boeing, they know if they produce, and E and and Airbus produces as well, because of the U.S. government subsidy, Boeing won't lose any money. But if they produce and Bo and Airbus doesn't, well, then they're, 
then they have profits. Now my fax machine's running. Let's uh, let's stop this while the fax machine does its job. Hang on a second. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm back. So Boeing's sitting there knowing they can't lose. Airbus, if they're if it's announced that the U.S. government's going to subsidize Boeing and cover their losses, if there are any losses now. Airbus knows, holy mackerel, Boeing's going to go ahead and produce, so Airbus is going to tell themselves, we're not going to produce. And so Boeing uh, Boeing knows that. Boeing knows because of the subsidy, Airbus won't produce. So Boeing will go ahead and produce. So Airbus is out of the market. Boeing will read the results. All a result of the U.S. entering the market and, and somehow uh, subsidizing Boeing. This is the notion of strategic trade policy. An interesting notion. Well, those are the arguments for for uh, government intervention in international trade. Now, we're going to look at two types of what is called commercial policy. We'll look at more on that. We'll look at two of them in detail. We'll just mention some others. Two types of, or two methods are used to restrict imports. A tariff, which is a tax on imports, and a quota, which is either a limit on the quantity of the good produced or a, a monetary value of the good that's allowed into the nation. I, I misspoke. A, an import quota is a physical limit on the number of goods that are allowed into the country. A value quota is a limit on the monetary value of goods. Well, we mentioned uh, export subsidies briefly, government procurement policies and health and safety standards. I, in fact, I'm not sure I will mention those. I'll let you read about those. We want to go through the analysis of a tariff and a quota. So if you go back to your slides, uh, <clears throat> on slide 11, we're looking at the effect of a tariff. Again, a tariff is nothing more than a tax on imports. So we look at this tariff, and we're looking at the U.S. market for oranges. So let's make sure what this stare at this for a minute. Let's make sure what this means. We have price of oranges on the vertical axis, quantity of oranges on the horizontal. That supply curve, that blue line, is the supply. It's, it's the domestic supply. That's the supply of oranges in the United produced by U.S. producers. So again, that's domestic supply. That's the supply forthcoming from U.S. producers of oranges. Uh, the demand curve is again the demand by. U.S. domestic consumers. So we're looking at the U.S. market. And if there were no exports or imports, the equilibrium price must be the PD, which stands for price domestic. And you know, it's way up there. It's the highest price. I think it talks about this example in the book. Uh, well, it doesn't. I thought maybe it'd give us a dollar value, but that's the price of oranges. If there were no trade, domestic supply would have to equal domestic demand. And that would be the price that would achieve this equilibrium. But if there are imports allowed, thinking back to chapter 20 in our export supply and export demand uh, curves, if there were uh, free trade allowed, let's assume that the world price of oranges is PW. In other words, we, the United States can import all the oranges they want at that price. At that price, that low price, you see domestic demand far exceeds domestic supply. And imports equal the difference between Q2 and Q1. That's what we lab what is labeled here as the free trade imports. Q2 minus Q1. 
and it looks like domestic producers only have about 15% of the market. Q1 only makes up about 15% of the total uh, represented by Q Q2. And so domestic producers of oranges, they're, they're not very happy about this. They'd like to sell more oranges and perhaps sell them at a higher price, but they can't compete with these cheap foreign oranges. So they lobby Congress, and Congress imposes a tariff equal to the dif distance between PW and PW plus T. That vertical distance on the vertical axis shows us the effect of the tariff. It raises the price of the of oranges in the domestic market. There's a lot of intuition here. If you put a tax on Im oranges coming into the uh, country, uh, it looks like in this case it's about, it raises the price of the oranges by about 25%. Well, but yeah, 30%. If there's a tax on oranges when they come into the market, that'll drive the price of oranges up to domestic consumers. And domestic producers can now charge a higher price since uh, foreign oranges cost more. Domestic produced oranges, they can charge more. So the price of oranges goes up overall to, to the uh, level labeled PW plus T. Well, what happens? Well, here the, it's, it's simple. One, imports fall. That's the whole point. The tariff was imposed to restrict imports. Imports fall. Imports were the difference between Q2 and Q1. Now it's the difference between Q4 and Q3. So imports fall. Domestic consumers purchase less. They were buying Q2, now domestic consumers are buying Q4. So domestic consumption falls. Domestic consumers are paying more and consuming less oranges. They're hurt. Consumers are hurt. Domestic producers, however, they're producing more. Domestic production goes up from Q1 to Q3. And they're, they're receiving a higher price. So just like we noted at the first of this lecture, a tariff, a restriction on imports, will help domestic producers hurt domestic consumers. But overall, we could, we could, but we don't. We're just gonna, I'm just gonna assume it and tell you that domestic, the the hurt, the uh, the loss to consumers in total exceeds the gain to producers. There's also some tariff revenue. The tariff, in dollar terms, equals the difference between PW and PW plus T. You multiply that by the quantity of imports, which is Q4 minus Q3, and you get tariff revenue, which is uh, that that box. Height equaling the amount of the tariff, the base times the is the quantity of imports. That base times height will give you that dollar value, uh, which represents tariff revenue. Well, the next slide gives us a, a look at quotas. Countries can also use quotas again, not a tax on imports, but just a physical limit on the number of imports allowed into the country. Uh, in slide 12, we see the effect of a quota on imports. So again, we have domestic supply. The first blue line is just domestic supply. There's domestic demand. Uh, we're looking at the orange market again. The world With the world price, imports would be 300 units. See that? At, price of, at the world price of oranges, domestic demand is 400. Domestic supply is 100, so imports with free trade would be 300 tons of oranges. Let's say there's an import quota of 100 tons. So now the effective supply curve becomes domestic supply plus the 100 ton quota. That's what the dashed blue line represents is the total supply available in the U.S. market. Total supply has to equal domestic demand. That occurs at the price PQ. 
So the effect of the tariff is very similar to the effect of the quota. It reduces imports. Imports were 300 units. Now they're the quota amount of 100. And the price to domestic consumers goes up. Domestic consumption falls. Con domestic consumers are paying more and consuming less oranges. Domestic producers, on the other hand, because of the artificially restricted quantity of imports, domestic the price of oranges goes up domestically. So domestic producers are selling more at a higher price. Domestic production goes up, goes from 100 to 200. Well, what about any revenue to the government? In the case of the tariff, that is a tax on imports, the government derives some revenue. In the case of a quota, which is a physical limit on the volume of the good that's allowed into the country, there may not be any revenue. There certainly isn't any tariff revenue by definition. That uh, is perhaps one difference between a tariff and a quota. The quota may not generate any revenue to the domestic government. Well, one last issue, and that is there's a little bit of analysis in Chapter 21 of the timely issue of preferential trade agreements. That is, nations, to some extent, to tie their own hands. That is, all nations, or I shouldn't say all nations, most political leaders recognize the benefits of free trade and the costs of imposing restrictions on imports and therefore they have entered into agreements that limit their own ability to shoot themselves in the foot, so to speak, that limit their own ability to impose trade restrictions. That is, we enter into international trade agreements that promote free trade. Two types of these are trade creation, or excuse me, two types of these are free trade areas and customs unions. If you go to slide 13, it talks about uh, uh, free trade areas. And we all know of a very, I don't, a very well-known free trade agreement. That is the North American Free Trade Area. Excuse me. Can also have a customs union. Now the two differ. That is a free trade area or a free trade agreement differs from a customs union in the following way. Both have free trade among the members of the of the agreement among the member nations. That is, with a free trade area, as the name would imply, you have free trade area free trade among the members of the of the uh, that have signed on to the agreement. With a customs union, same thing. You have free trade among the member nations. Now with a customs union, however, you as an additional element adopt that is the nations that are member members of the customs union adopt a common trade policy with respect to the rest of the world. That is, the free trade area, you do, nations do not adopt a, a common set of tariffs with respect to the rest of the world. For NAFTA, Mexico still has its own set of tariffs with uh, other nations, and, uh, independent from the tariff structure or the trade arrangements the United States has with other nations. This, the NAFTA is just simply a free trade area. That is, we have free trade among the North American countries. A if we had a customs union with Mexico and Canada, we would not only have free trade among these three nations, we would also have a common uh, set of trade restrictions and trade agreements with respect to other non-member nations. So that's the idea of a customs union. Now the formation of 
a preferential trade agreement will cause both trade creation and it may cause trade diversion. And when you look at the analysis of trade creation and trade diversion in slides 14 and 15, trade diversion is occurs when the so let's just look at the case of a free trade area between Mexico and the United States. Let's use that as our example. Trade diversion occurs when, when, for example, the United States was previously importing, let's say, uh, textiles from, from South Korea, and when the United States formed the free trade area with Mexico, the United States would begin to import textiles from Mexico rather than South Korea. That is, the free trade area diverted trade away from South Korea to Mexico. Now, the trade creation part of it is that the free trade area would have created trade in textiles between Mexico and the United States. So, in some ways, these preferential trade agreements are bad in the sense that they may move trade away from a low-cost country to a higher-cost country, but at the same time, there's a good part of the free trade area because it will be creating some trade. And we see that prospect or that possibility in slide 15. And this is there's a lot, there's a, this is a busy slide, there's a lot going on here. But let's, uh, let's, let's look at this. Here we're, we're talking about, uh, uh, I don't know, what is this market? Well, we're sticking with our orange market that's been consistent throughout this chapter. We're looking at it from the U.S. perspective. And so the blue line in slide 15 is domestic supply of oranges. The red line is the U.S. demand for oranges. If there were no trade at all, the equilibrium price would have to be $500 per ton to equilibrate domestic supply with domestic demand. Now, if there were, with, we're thinking of two other countries that the United States could purchase oranges from Israel, which is the low-cost producer. Israel can supply oranges at $150 a ton. That's what that horizontal blue line indicates. That Israel is the low-cost producer at $150 a ton. And if there were free trade with Israel, we would import... Uh, the United States would import a lot of oranges from Israel. Looks like the difference between $750, which would be domestic demand at a price of $150 a ton, and domestic supply, which would be 100 tons. So it would import 650 tons of oranges from Israel if there were free trade. Now, Brazil is a slightly higher cost producer. They could sell oranges to the U.S. at $200 a ton, uh, 50 bucks higher than Israel. And let's say initially, the way this diagram works and what we want to think about is that initially there is a, a tariff, uh, a common tariff on, on oranges, and it looks like the tariff is a, a $150. So with free trade, $150 a ton, with free trade, the United States could import oranges from Israel $150 a ton, but with a tariff of $150 a ton, that doubles the price to $300. And Brazilian oranges would now cost, with the tariff, uh, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a percentage tariff. the tariff increases, so it increases uh, proportionally, the tariff increases the price proportionally, the Brazilian price goes from 200 to 400. Again, it doubles, so it's a 100% tariff. 100% tariff on Israeli oranges doubles the price from 150 to 300. The 100% tariff on Brazilian oranges doubles the price from 200 to 400. 
So with a common 100% tariff on all oranges, the United States would import oranges from Israel and Israel only at $300. And you could see that imports would be, uh, let me see, domestic demand at 300 would be 600 tons. Domestic supply at that price is 250 tons, so imports would be 350 tons. Now let's assume, so notice, orange, uh, oranges, imported oranges only come from Israel. Let's assume that the U.S. forms a free trade area with Brazil. Keeps the 150, uh, keeps the 100% tariff against Israeli oranges, but no tariffs against Brazilian oranges. Well, you can see now Israel trade in oranges is diverted away from Israel. Israel no longer supplies oranges to the United States. All the oranges that the U.S. imports come from Brazil at the Brazilian free trade price of $200 a ton and the U.S. will import looks like 550 tons of oranges from Brazil with the free trade area. So trade again is diverted away from Israel which is a low-cost producer in and of itself that's not good but because of the free trade area there's actually trade created between the United States and Brazil and that is good. Of course the perfect solution would be or the first best solution would be for the United States to reduce all tariffs, and in that case, uh, we would import oranges at $150 each, or $150 per ton from Brazil. Ah, I strike that. It's wrong. With complete free trade, the United States would import oranges at $150 a ton from Israel. Well, the point to take from this example is that the formation of preferential trade agreements, like a free trade area, both create and divert trade. And I think on that cheery note, uh, we will end. Bye-bye.